I am greatly honored uh, to welcome the Holberg Laureate 2019, Professor Paul Gilroy, to the Holberg Conversation. So, welcome. Thank you. You are at present a professor of American and English literature at King's College. However, very recently, I think now in late May, uh, you have been appointed founding director of Center for the Study of Race and Racism. At this new center at University College London, you will be, and I quote, responsible for establishing a vibrant new interdisciplinary research center that harnesses scholarship from across UCL in the critical study of race, as well as the history, theory, and politics of racism and its effects, end of quote. So congratulations Thank on you. that as well. Thank you again. Now, the reason we are having this conversation today is that you've received the Holberg Prize this year. And I think it's worth noting what the committee writes about you, and I quote, Paul Gilroy is one of the most challenging and inventive figures in contemporary scholarship. His work has influenced and in some cases reshaped several fields and subfields, including cultural studies, critical race studies, sociology, history, anthropology, and African-American studies. He is a preeminent scholar of modernity's counter-history, as well as the relationship of modernity over development and underdevelopment in the black Atlantic world." End of quote. We will, of course, be delving into your work and uh, also its relevance for our present age, but I thought we could start with knowing a bit about your background, both personal and academic. So, could we start by you telling us a bit about your upbringing and formative years? Thank you um, for your generous introduction. I'm a, a creature of a certain moment in the post-colonial life of Britain. My mother was a migrant from Guyana in South America, a country um, that is, of course, part of the Caribbean, um, area of the European colonial expansion, but the area that my mother came from is far into the interior of Guyana and uh, the family from which she um, grew was a family that spoke both Dutch and English and lived on either side of the river that divided Guyana, British Guyana as it was originally, from Suriname. So that was my mother's story. My father uh, descended from German migrants in the 19th century, um, born after the First World War, but spoke German at home. They anglicized their name because of the anti-German feeling at the time of World War I, although his father and my uncles served in World War I in the British Army and were very traumatized. Actually, the uncles on both sides in, of my family fought in World War I. And I grew up in London at a time when uh, the post-war politics of decolonization, the patterns of political settlement deriving from the uh, appearance of post-colonial peoples in, in the metropolis and the consolidation of their position there as citizens was a very striking transformation. I grew up in an area of North London where, of course, there were many English uh, heritage, uh, uh, many generations uh, settled English people that but were there, but, but also a place where there were Jews, where there were Sikhs, where there were Cypriots, where there were Italians, where there were Maltese, Jamaicans, Indians, Pakistanis. My best friend growing up was a boy of my own age whose father was Algerian, whose mother was French. They had come away from France to find some place to be together in a, in a moment, really, I suppose, where mixed marriages across the divisions of, that we're told are racial were frowned upon, were impossible. My sister and I were these uh, impossible children then, you know, these half-caste children who, uh, I suppose, on the one hand, you're considered racialized as black. On the other hand, you're something rather uncertain because of the mixture. You never know who you're dealing with. And I think this experience of a very cosmopolitan upbringing, 
by two parents, one a migrant herself, another removed by three generations from migration, but still because of the language question, uh, the German language question, uh, still, I think, haunted by the experience of having relocated from Germany to England. So I think I was, I was, it was an unusual upbringing, um, kind of, I would like to say a kind of Creole upbringing in the sense of the access to multiple languages, cultures, styles, um, the whole question of how, how the city itself is being transformed by these waves of settlement was something that conditioned my own formation. And these were years, I suppose, following the, the riots which took place in our city in 1958. These were not always years in which it was easy to be a black kid wandering around the city. There's quite a lot of hostility um, on the receiving end of that kind of dynamic. And I think that meant that I developed a, an interest in understanding some of the peculiar behaviours that were directed at me. And I, w I don't know if this is true, perhaps I'm the last person to be able to explain it, but I think the roots of my critical interest in the machinery of racism derived from some of those very early formative experiences, being assaulted in the street, abused in the street, my parents being abused, um, if I went out with my father for a walk in the forest, you know, I remember one time being stopped by the police and him being interrogated to discover whether he really was my father. What's this white man doing with a little black boy wandering in the forest? Actually, he was showing me certain birds that I had not yet seen at that time. So, so this is my formation. And, and, and trying to, in, in a way, experiencing these things is one thing, but theorizing them and understanding the, the psychosocial dynamism of prejudice, of violence, of abuse. These were the seeds, I suppose I could say, of my own intellectual formation with regard to the things that came to define my work later on. Would you say that uh, this kind of upbringing and this kind of uh, cosmopolitan background, in a sense, or cosmopolitan area that you grew up in, mm. including its violence, including its racism, including its mm. uh, its uh, brutality was what led you to to join uh, the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies with Stuart Hall later on, I think in 1978. That's right. Well, I had gone to university uh, three years before that, and I, I went to a place, I went to Sussex University for two reasons. First of all, you didn't have to do exams there at that time, uh, unseen exams. You had to, lots of exams, but you didn't have to sit down in a room for four hours with no books and, and so on. And I had not been very successful at school at that kind of exam. So I picked, I wanted to go there. And it was an unusual university also at that time because it, they had a situation of small tutorials. So for most of the classes I took, I was just with one or two other students in a room with a teacher. And there were, I didn't go to lectures, I went to the library. And that suited me very well. But the, the most important thing about that, which prepared me, I think, for my research um, studies, was really this sense of, of multidisciplinary intellectual inquiry. So I took courses where the disciplinary allegiance was not policed very tightly. I took courses in history, in sociology, in philosophy, and of course, in, I'd gone there to study literature. And then after halfway through my course, abandoned literature and went in different directions. So I think I, there was a restlessness, perhaps intellectually, a restlessness. And, and I won't say contempt, although, you know, in your early 20s, you have some odd ideas about the way that institutions operate. I wanted, I was never wholly satisfied with the forms of literary analysis that were offered to me. I wanted to find a, a bolder way of engaging the questions and problems that occupied me. Uh, and, I, and I found that, I think, partly in history and partly in, in sociology and some of the more philosophical edges of, of both disciplines. And uh, I thought, well, I got to the end of my first degree. I thought, well, I have, I've had a multidisciplinary degree. I really want to go on. And then one day I was in the bookshop. I was often in the bookshop or the library. I was in the bookshop and I saw a book that had come from the Birmingham Centre. Uh, 
the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies that had been established by Richard Hoggart with UNESCO support, again, outside of the disciplinary structures of the university. And the director was Stuart Hall. I'd heard Stuart speak. I knew he was Jamaican. I knew he'd been involved with the Caribbean arts movement. My mother was a writer, so I knew about the Caribbean arts movement. The, many of the artists and poets and contributors, painters to the Caribbean arts movement were people that were my mother's peers and she had been students with them and so on. So this history, I knew Stuart was involved in all of that too. I was very excited about working with Stuart. I wouldn't say we always agreed about everything. Of course, the curriculum of cultural studies in its Birmingham variation was not something that was at that point accommodating of an interest in what I suppose a later academic language would call critical race theory to have a black director of such a centre, a Jamaican. But the work that Stuart was doing, first of all for UNESCO, in the era of uh, Glisson and others, that work that Stuart was doing was very exciting to me. And there he was in writing about the racial order of the world, but doing it comparatively, doing it again within several disciplines. Uh, and of course, uh, what's her name? Mariana Callahan at the UNESCO Centre in Paris was editing these major anthologies of writing on race that brought together scholars from Latin America, scholars from across Europe, scholars from the Caribbean, United States to talk about these questions. And Stuart was very much at the centre of that. And the other thing he was doing was that he was writing in a more interventionist way, in a more conjunctural way about the way that racism was changing the functioning of British political institutions and the operations of British society. And this was also an extremely exciting possibility. When I got there, I used to enjoy his teaching very much. And he was somebody who shaped me intellectually, but mostly I think I can say, shaped me through our disagreements. And that was very useful. It was a very useful. And he, although we disagreed, was somebody who took me seriously. And again, I, I wasn't always used to that. So that was also stimulating. And one of the things about the Birmingham Centre was that it wasn't a, high, a strongly hierarchical place, that the research students who were there, many of whom have gone on to be quite successful academics in the conventional sense, in different parts of the world, actually, and many of whom have not taken that path, many of whom have not taken that path, who've gone into teaching or forms of cultural activism, or one of my peers in my MA class was Dave Batchelor, who's quite a distinguished contemporary artist. So this is a very, very rich and stimulating company. And, and so I, I found, again, even in the disagreements, there was a nourishment for my critical imagination in Birmingham. Very interesting. And it's interesting what you say about the uh, disagreements. Huh? Uh, could you elaborate a bit on what those disagreements are so we yeah, can course, we can start course. getting an image about okay. sort of the kind of debates that were yeah. going on at the, at the centre? Well, of course, when, when I got there, there was a, a raging debate about gender and feminism and what and what feminist inquiry and feminist politics required of an academic institution of that time. And I think that probably that debate's still going on in the academic world. So we don't have to say much about how it developed, but that was one of the most striking things that this was a place that accommodated that kind of discussion uh, when other places didn't even know that discussion was waiting for them. But I think the central frustration of my Birmingham experience, intellectually speaking, was with what I would call the nationalist habits of certain forms of, of cultural studies. The generation of cultural studies thinkers, particularly the historians of the Communist Party historians group, Edward Thompson, who was often to be found downstairs in the University of Birmingham in the, um, in the English department canteen. I would see Edward there. And uh, of course I couldn't, at that time I didn't speak to him. Um, I was too shy and he had a reputation for being a bit grumpy. And, uh, and of course the generation of Hoggart and Williams, who were people I admired greatly, but in all of the writing, I suppose, was a, was a kind of covert 
attachment to the possibility that culture had to be approached methodologically, conceptually, primarily as a national question. And there were some readings of Gramsci's work, which is fundamental, of course, to the development of cultural studies, which accentuated this issue of the national popular as the, not just the frame, but the foundation for certain kinds of cultural inquiry. Well, you can immediately see from what I've said to you already that in terms of my disposition as the child of migrants, as a, uh, what's the word? As a, as a young person habituated to a kind of cosmopolitan environment. But when I say cosmopolitan, I don't mean the people that turn left when they get to the top of the airplane steps. I'm talking about cosmopolitanism from below. I'm not talking about 1% cosmopolitanism. Uh, this commitment to a methodological nationalism, to culture in the national frame only was immensely frustrating. And I think the, the first struggle was really to try to understand the appeal of that particular framing and then to start to interrogate it and suggest other possibilities, other scales, other patterns. One of the previous laureates, of course, Manuel Castells, someone who, again, has influenced me greatly, talks about the things that start to happen when we look at flows rather than static places. And I think I was reading Castells quite early on because he had begun his career as a, well, begun. I became aware of his career initially through his studies of, of immigrant workers. And so the question of flows, of migrations, of objects, moving from place to place, of ideas moving from place to place. What are the vectors, vectors of culture going to be? How is culture? Now, I know you, you uh, have an interest in anthropology. Anthropologists had a number of answers to these questions and they were part of our curriculum in cultural studies. But again, I think that the crisis that was brewing in anthropology around its association with certain colonial habits and practices was not yet completely evident, although I suppose we must have read Talal Assad at some point then. And of course, this discussion became a richer and more interesting one after the publication of Orientalism in 1980-79-80. So these things were all happening and I had arrived at my own frustrations with this uh, national popular the frustrations with this assumption of culture as an essentially and fundamentally national phenomenon. And that was not just a problem conceptually, but it was a problem also because of the way that racism outside the university was changing. And it was moving away, I think we can say, from a sort of strictly biological and hierarchical sense of racial difference towards a much more culturalist understanding of racial difference. And so for all these reasons, I felt we had to try to think about culture in a slightly different way than the one which asserts its primary tie to territory, to fixity, to soil, to belonging. We had to accommodate the flows, the migrations, the transformations, the mixtures, the movements that made culture anew. And this became, I won't say an obsession, but a, a primary interest of mine and, you know, I wasn't just, I don't want to give the impression that I was someone who was a, a boring academic student sitting in the library. I, I spent a lot of time in the library. It's always been one of my places I like to go to work and think. But I think I was also the beneficiary, let's say, of my musical interests and passions and, and writing about music and in a popular way, writing in the newspapers, in the magazines about reviewing records when people used to do that. Um, people used to, I mean, probably you can dimly remember the, the time when people paid for music. So I, I, I became or developed a practice of journalistic writing to supplement my other in income from the grant I had as a research student. So I began to write about music. And of course, I've always played music. And the, the life of the music that interested me was always a mobile one. It was always 
moving. It was always changing. It was always growing. It was always developing as it shifted from one place to another. So I felt this, this sort of Creole impulse and the development of a cosmopolitanism, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, were all made substantive in the kind of cultural history one could tell about the life of black music during that period. This was the golden era of reggae, of soul, of jazz. Uh, well, I suppose we would dispute the golden era of jazz, but let's leave that to one side. This was a, a, bloom, a period of blooming in the, the cultural life of what I now call the Black Atlantic, um, when an enormous cultural energy and an enormous volume of compelling work was produced. And we can account for that moment of blooming historically. Uh, but this was, this was fortunate for me to, to come of age intellectually in an environment that was also being culturally conditioned by those forces. Uh, you mentioned your book, The Black Atlantic, uh, Modernity and Double Consciousness, which is perhaps your most well-known book, I think. And uh, I appreciate what you say about you wanting to carve out a space that is not a territory, that is not confined by the nation, that is not confined by space as hegemonic politics like to, to uh, think of it. And this other space or other kind of um, domain that you work with in, your, in your, many of your writings is the sea. Mm. Uh, could you elaborate a bit about why the sea in your sense mm. is such a rich, I don't know if we should call it a domain or an mm. essence mm. or a possibility or what, how, how would you, how would you characterize the sort mm. of the sea's influence on you and your thinking in a sense? Well, the oceanic, I mean, I think it began really with thinking about the ocean, um, the oceanic feeling, you know, it's that, that idea of the kinds of cultural history I was trying to criticize, assumed that culture belonged in one place, was part of that territory. When people get onto the boat, when they're forced onto the boat at the point of a sword or a gun, to become slaves in an Atlantic system which is unknown to them. Uh, a lot of the habits of intellectual analysis I was trying to damage saw that process as arrested when the ship sailed and resumed when the ship docked on the other side. And I wanted to say, well, what's going on in the process of this experience of being moved, uh, of being mixed. And this is something that is only possible when one begins to think of a, a, of a kind of marine culture, an ocean, a pelagic, if you like, a pelagic culture, uh, that there are things going on on board that ship that we need to know about. And not just among the slaves beneath the deck, but actually on the deck, what forms of labor, what forms of language, what, how is, who, is the ship insured? Where did the ship go before? What was in the hold before the people were in the hold? Uh, which people? But were there, were there migrants from Europe going to the Americas in that hold before the ship went to, to take slaves somewhere else? Uh, what other commodities? Was there wool in that ship? Was there rum in salt cod? Was there salt cod in that ship? We need to know where that economic vector, that economic um, uh, unit, where it had been, what it was in before, what, what it had contained before it contained people, we can reconstruct a much richer account of culture, of interaction, of um, contact between different groups and populations and interests by taking the ship as a kind of motif, as a chronotope, uh, we could say, for connecting and reconstructing this history. So that was really how the interest in, in the sea began. And I think since then, in the work I've been trying to do more recently, the, the, the interest in the sea and salt water is beginning to give way to a larger interest in water and to the forms of ethics and politics and economic life that attend from foregrounding issues of water. Do you have access 
to water. We're not like those creatures that never need to drink or drink once a year or something like that. We're not, we're not those kind of creatures. We have to drink regularly and frequently. And the question of what's in our water and, uh, and our access to it, I'm, I'm, I think like you, very fortunate in not having to go and fetch my water every day from um, you know somewhere some distance some kilometers away we can actually turn on the tap and most of the time the water that comes out of it is is water that we can use so so i've begun i think to, to think about not just pelagic uh, the implications of a pelagic approach to culture but to think about something like a kind of fluvial humanism because there are there are there's water in our bodies and there are bodies in the water and we need to see the two things in relation i would like to uh, to follow up on that because of course a central research theme of yours has been race and we really need to approach mm. how you think about race more okay. more uh, deeply now, if we go back to your recent appointment at UCL, they, they write, and I quote, Using philosophy, sociology, musicology, literature, history, and critical theory, he has breathed new life into the humanist tradition, extending it to include scholarly and political discourses and race and anti-racist polemic, end of quote. I think the quote nicely captures the huge span of your research and impact. And a key aspect in this is, of course, race, yeah? which you also deal with uh, in uh, the Black Atlantic that we just spoke about. Could you, for us, elaborate a bit about your, a key argument of yours, which is that racism produces race, not the other way around, which is commonly assumed, mm. at least in some public discourse? Yes, I think this is a this is a problem really that comes from the idea that racial differences are given in nature, and what happens is they are substantively present, and what happens is that racism comes along, and it misrecognizes natural difference, and makes it bad because it's racist. I I, I understand the force of that argument actually. I think that was an important argument to see to see natural difference. Uh, I'm not trying to abolish the idea that there are natural differences among people. Of course there are. Whether those uh, the best accounts that we have these days of natural difference coincide with the expectations and categories of racial thought, racial thinking, is another matter altogether. I would say that in common sense language, the kind of racial categories that are most familiar, most um, intelligible to people, really are categories that came from the terminal points of European trading activity in the 18th century. And this is a very random view of how racial differences might be thought. So we need, we need to have a much richer understanding of the variation within human populations and where those variations count. We need this for biomedical intervention. We need to know which groups of people um, who have access to medical care metabolize a certain therapeutic intervention or drug that they're given. We need to know how they metabolize it and so on. But I don't think that that kind of scientific inquiry leads us back to the racial categories of the 18th century. It takes us somewhere, somewhere else. And, and, and yet those categories persist. They, they recur, they are recycled, their grip on the world is tightened, even via the, the culturalist rendering of racial difference, seems not to inhibit that process. So I want to focus on the, the creative, the imaginative, the inventive assembling of racial actors, of racial groups in the world, and not see them as simply expressions of difference that are already rendered by nature itself. In your work, you use the term infrahuman, yes. which I think is drawn from uh, medicine mm. uh, to capture the kind of hierarchicalization of, of, of race. Could you expand a bit uh, uh, course, for us um, on the notion of infrahuman and why yes, it's, why useful, it's useful, to, useful to mine this field? Yeah, I mean, 
I think you're right that term infrahuman does have a, a resonance in, in medical discourse, but it was, not, it was something I, I think that came into my own thinking from other sources as well. Firstly, from the archive of writing by slaves about their experience of enslavement. And secondly, from writing from within the genocide of the Third Reich about the forms of cruelty, violence, and the institutionalization of mass death in the European setting. And I think in each of these archives, you find something like the figure of infrahuman. When I say infrahuman, I mean human, yes, but not quite human enough to win the forms of recognition that are most important. Yes, I mean, of course, if you're going to, as a slaveholder, hand your child over to a woman who will wet nurse your child, the most precious thing you, you have, you, you, if you're going to, I don't know, the slaveholders impregnate the, the woman, they don't think they're having sex with animals, they think they're having sex with another human being. So they know the humanity of those they enslave, but they disavow the humanity of those they enslave. Primo Levi, who's inf influenced me a great deal in the, the quality of humanism that I aspire to, was someone who survived the lager of Auschwitz and knew as a storyteller how to make that sublime cruelty intelligible. He explained it. He, he and others have done this too. But Levy speaks a lot about what he called the useless violence of that experience. Why? But if you know you're going to murder people, why don't, why, why don't you just kill them where they are? Why would you go in a hospital and take people out from a hospital who you're going to murder at the point of a bayonet and ship them hundreds of kilometers across the continent in a cattle truck with no water, with no toilet facilities. Why are you doing that? Levy says, we need to understand what's going on when this kind of cruelty, this apparently useless violence is evident and repeated. And the answer is that you are doing this for your own psychological well-being. Because the people you're going to murder do not spontaneously appear in the world as infrahuman. They look like human beings. And in order to do that systematic violence, you need for your own psychic health to be able to make them into that thing which they ought already to have been. And I think that what he calls the outrage motive, the outrage motive is useful because that too recurs in numerous instances of violence and cruelty warranted by racial ideas. The people aren't spontaneously different, so you have to make them different. And if you can make them different, you can do with them what you want. So the trope of infrahumanity is really a way, it's part of a vocabulary I tried to develop a constellation of concepts that, that are addressed to those histories of suffering and which don't just, I suppose, feel that talking racism, 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 racism. I wanted to try to offer some more wieldy instruments, concepts that, that didn't. A lot of the time, the struggle around racism and anti-racism sounds silly. It sounds trivial. People make it, even some of the activists who are its strongest advocates, make it seem silly, make it seem trivial by saying, oh, I don't know, let's change the language in Pippi Longstocking or something like that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying it's not top of the list. When there are structural inequalities to be dealt with, when there are deaths to be prevented, then let's get to the Pippi problem later, okay? So if we aren't going to make it if we're not going to be complicit in making anti-racism seem silly, we need better concepts. We need to use them more artfully. We need a richer critical vocabulary in order to make that compelling. And in relation to that, uh, and hearing you now talk about uh, Primo Levi, you've also worked with Hannah Arendt, uh, you've dealt with uh, some of the darkest dimensions of human history in a sense the auschwitz the slave trade etc at the same time you're also a very hopeful person you've also introduced other concepts for us to help us 
think about the world and also help us think about human possibility, such as planetary humanism. Mm. Could you explain to us what that concept does? Mm. For me, the idea of planetary humanism is a sort of thought experiment, a corrective to the bad habits instantiated in the European Enlightenment. When Descartes sat down in his oven in Amsterdam to invent the method <laughs> that was going to stabilize knowledge for, um, uh, as a challenge really to the overthrow of a religious uh, view of things. A new method that allowed God to remain present but in a more decorative role. Uh, he said that on the one hand his world was bounded by the Chinese and on the other it was bounded by the cannibals, the East and the West. I suppose I, I, want, to, um, I want to know the history of these projections and I want to use a kind of heuristic, a continuing process of investigation into the limits and the boundaries of the human to people in my position have an obligation to find hope even in hopeless conditions and for me planetary humanism is a concept of that kind I mean, it's interesting you say I'm, I'm hopeful I think of myself as a kind of cosmic pessimist really as a disciple of Giacomo Leopardi the most cosmically pessimist uh, poetic and philosophical voice really of the 19th century who's guided me through my whole intellectual enterprise but yes hope people we have we are obliged to find resources of hope even in the hopeless conditions if Prima Levi can emerge from that archive if Amery if Charlotte Delbo if uh, uh, the, the others who come from that world, the concentrationary universe can emerge with, with, with resources of hope, then we can do that. If Frederick Douglass and uh, Linda Brent and Equiano and Phyllis Wheatley can emerge from their sufferings, from their experiences with hope um, and with, with love, then, then, then we are obliged to do that too. And so for me, the aspiration towards the development of a planetary humanism is important because it tells us we can have, I suppose, what some philosophers have called an, an agonistic relationship with the humanist traditions that passed before. And where we differ from the agonistic humanisms of the 20th century is where we say the critique of the racial rendering of the human is fundamental. It's not, it's not just an incidental good. It's something that takes us to a place which will be a better, a more worthwhile, a more interesting place if we keep that problem in the centre of our thinking. I would like to move to another related area. Uh, we move from hope to imagination in a mm. sense. Uh, and in your work, you've already commented on this, you straddle a broad range of fields, musicology, history, literature, uh, performing arts, photography you've worked with and in some ways you come across as a broad and non-discipline uh, based uh, intellectual in a sense and I would like to ask you is there a politics to this? Is there a trajectory here from your Birmingham days as well until now and until the intellectual you've become and um, sustaining this sort of anti-discipline or non-discipline uh, approach to intellectual labor in a sense? Well, I think, I think it's the case that cultural studies was that, and it was a political project of a certain kind. And it wasn't only that in Birmingham. I think we can read the work of Raymond Williams, a great, great uh, thinker who, again, has influenced me a lot, even in the disagreements or especially in the disagreements, but someone I, whose work I admire limitlessly. Uh, and, and, and other thinkers too from that cultural studies tradition, there is always a, uh, a sense of a, an ecumenical and political orientation. And when the crisis came into the universities, after a little while in the 80s and 90s and so on, uh, not the crisis we have now, but an earlier wave of that, I felt that 
some of the people I knew best in cultural studies retreated. They went back to a kind of disciplinary carapace. They went in there and they said, oh yes, we used to do cultural studies, but now we are really historians of German film between 1935 and 1936. You know, there was almost a, a sense in which a, an affiliation to the discipline was going to be a protective shield against the storm in the university. And I suppose I, I didn't really, I, I think that that retreat was, I, I can understand it, but it wasn't, wasn't really for me because I was still enjoying the novelty of having a job in a university that I thought I would never ever get, you know. I've often said that the fact that I got a job in a university at all was a measure of the decline of the university. I never thought that that would be possible. So I, 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 in, in, that, in that sense then, it was, it's easier to try to hold on to a much more, um, what Stuart would call, conjunctural orientation to our work as teachers. I've never been the kind of uh, university creature who, I believe in the university fundamentally as a unique and special kind of place, but I've never been somebody who had endless research jo jobs and never did, I've been a teacher I've been a teacher and I'm committed to being a teacher and I, I've tried to learn from the best teachers that I've had that the role of the teacher is to abolish the plinth on which the teacher is positioned. So I've tried to live by that vocation, if you like. It's the sort of self-limiting authority of the academic teacher. And I've learned a lot from my students. So yeah, there's a politics, there is a politics to that. And, and there is, there is a, a sense that the, the patterning of knowledge in universities is a, is, a, is a problem. And the institutionalization of those patterns is a problem. When, when I worked in the United States and there were more resources, one of the things I wanted to do in the, the parts of the university I was in control with was to build new conversations across disciplinary boundaries. So for a long time, I worked with my colleague Alondra Nelson, who's at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton now, and we ran a seminar on questions of race and medicine, um, a historical seminar. And we, we, I found that a very formative and a very stimulating seminar. It ran for, for a couple of years. And it was interesting that the reaction of people in the African-American Studies Department is to say, what has this got to do with African-American studies, you know? So that parochialism, fighting off the parochialism, fighting off the small c conservatism that comes from a very parochial relationship with disciplinary labels, this is always going to be an issue when you try to anticipate the problems, not of this moment, but of the next one. I would like to enter another area uh, of uh, our discussion with you, um, relating to fascism. Uh, and I know that this is a theme that engages you a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you've also cautioned against the rise of new forms of fascism. Yes. And would you say, uh, for instance, that fascism as a form of racist totalitarian politics is becoming more mainstream? I'm thinking about yeah. the UK and Europe, for instance. I'm yeah. thinking about the US. Mm. Well, it, it's clearly the case that political style, political opinions, political, I guess we'd say ideological, political motifs associated with the extreme right conversation with not just with nationalism, but with ultra-nationalism and neo-fascism have now found a place in the mainstream of our, our political life and institutions. And, and that's true, I think, particularly in, in my country, which is a great, oddly enough, as a result of the technological changes and the uh, digitization of political culture, I would say my country is a great exporter of neo-fascist content to the rest of the, of the world. So, so this is something I, I care very deeply about. I mean, we're not the only ones, of course, there are a number of, um, there's a great deal of US racial politics exported to the rest of the world also. But I think 
the um, in the European setting, you know, so much of this goes back to the transformation of the ultra right in in Britain, the uh, the decomposition of a uh, far right politics that's based on mobilizing people and a turn towards a kind of computer mediated activism and solidarity among them which has few costs or fewer costs in the real world than it would have had until very very recently so you can send a meme or, or click on a button and send off some frightful appalling neo-nazi message or attachment and people don't know it's you and you don't have any there are no consequences for you in doing that so there's a kind of disinhibiting factor involved in the computer as a mediating element so i think so i think that's one that's one part of it of course as levy and others warned us when you uh, encounter these forces today they don't come with a convenient label attached on them they don't come necessarily in recognizable form and i suspect that colleagues students and others have got quite bad really because of the mainstreaming at knowing what a fascist argument looks like and sounds like they i think have to become reacquainted with the work involved in being able to interpret these languages, symbols, discourses, even if we are told it's only with irony that they're being spoken today. So this is one reason I, I guess I felt that um, a simple no platform position is not one I'm very comfortable with because I think that doesn't solve the problem of this necessary reacquaintance with ultra-right and neo-fascist forms of argument. We need to be in some way exposed. We need to read their books. We need to understand their goals and their hopes. Their utopia is a very vivid thing um, compared to the one of the anti-racists at the moment. It's, it's a place of injured people. It's a place of resentful people. It's a place of anxious people who don't want to be displaced or replaced. They don't want um, the the strangers coming out of the water and supplanting them within the, the kind of uh, cozy world that they have been able to establish. And this is a very vivid and very powerful narrative that is at the heart of so much of the resurgence of neo-fascist forces across, across Europe. I think also that, for instance, uh, right-wing populism, as it's uh, expressed in Europe, uh, has very much to do, to do with uh, what you just mentioned, but you didn't say it that clearly, cultural na nationalism, yeah? mm. which is a term you use a lot mm. as well. Would you say that that idea of a cultural purity, a national territory, is also integral to, to the dynamics of Brexit? The idea that you can reset political time to a clock which takes you back to a moment where there is no otherness in the world, there is no impurity in the world, there's only homogeneity, not just homogeneity, a kind of hyper-similarity where everyone you encounter is already exactly like yourself. This is an interesting kind of a fantasy and in, in Britain it's very much connected to the loss, I think, of that imperial f fantasy on the one hand and to the, the central place of stories about the Second World War on the other. I wrote about this before. So yes, but the, the pursuit of purity is a, is very, it's a very seductive goal, I think, but it's delusional because the, even well, no, I mean, I don't know where you would look for such a purity. I mean, I know that in some of the playbooks of the alt-right, Scandinavia is held up as a place of homogeneity, a homogenous culture. I'm not sure that that looks the same from Copenhagen as it does from, I don't know, Kiruna. You know, there's a, there's a, there's an exp there's a, there's a colonial story to be told, never mind the seafaring and the, you know, Danish-Norwegian 
corporation, buccaneering corporations of the 17th century, go to the north of this area and ask me those questions about colonial power and government again. And we, we will, so where's the purity? I mean, and the other place that is often cited, of course, is Japan. Well, ask the Ainu, you know, ask the Koreans, ask the Manchurians, you know, let's, let's talk about that. So, so I think this, it's a fantasy, this idea of purity. And in my own uh, country, it's betrayed really by its symptoms. When the utopia of purity is identified, it's always in the context of war. It's always, the fantasy is always about war. We're always in the air raid shelter in the autumn of 1940, and the bombs are falling outside. And in the air raid shelter, we have tea. Well, where did the tea come from? We have sugar to put in the tea. Where did the sugar come from? We're already, even in the, the image of purity, there's already a, 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 a counter history, a minor history that can be inscribed in that image of utopian coziness as the bombs rain down. You wear a tie today mm. uh, from the Extinction Rebellion, which mm. is a broad-based environmentalist movement, you could say, uh, engaging with climate change mm. and engaging with uh, um, the crisis of our planet mm. at a scale we have never seen uh, mm -hmm. before, I mm -hmm. think it's safe to say. Could you um, tell us why this is important to you? I, I am a child of Rachel Carson and Thor Heyerdahl. I am a child of, of them. They expanded my imagination with regard to the planetary character of my own precarious existence on the edge of Northern Europe. I remember looking at maps of, of the flow of water across the Atlantic and the temperatures and the currents. And of course, later on, when I was a student, I thought, well, actually it's these winds and these um, circulation of water that made the oceanic adventures of uh, emergent capitalism possible. So I've thought about these things for a long time and I've always been somebody who enjoyed being outside. And in, I suppose in the last few years, I, I began to, in my garden, in my house, in London where we live, I've no, I began to, to notice things that were different, you know, uh, in the past, maybe in May I would see certain insects or I would see certain bees in the sort of cycle across the, the summer and I, I began to notice those changes and I be, then I began to think, well, of course there are other, there are other creatures that seem to be thriving. And I began to collect material for a book I wanted to write about this peculiar ecology and the selection of plants and animals that thrive in it. Lots of magpies, <laughs> you know, for example. Um, and of course, when I began to think about the, about the um, plants, of course, another colonial story entered into the... Uh, entered into it because the butterfly bush, the, the buddleia, is, a, is a, a very interesting colonial story attached to that plant. And my mother, I put certain um, plants on her grave which she associated with the bomb sites of London because she liked the idea that some of these plants grew back quickly in the rubble, you know. So I've always been attentive to these things and, and I suppose I found the apparent indifference and disorientation of mainstream political culture to this crisis, I found this a baffling phenomenon. So when the young people started going on strike from school and trying to draw attention to this, I felt great sympathy for them and I was very moved by the urgency of their demand from us. And it's very easy, I think, and entirely wrong to make this into a generational question, that we are the generation that messed things up and they're the, you know, do you see what I mean? And when the Extinction Rebellion protest came to England, and it's been, I think, quite strong there, the demographic profile of the movement was very interesting because 
in the demonstrations there people from my age and older and then people from I don't know 12 to 20 and in the middle not so many but at either end of this arc of life quite a bul big bulge in both places so I had great I have great sympathy with them and I felt so far at least there that the, they have conveyed the urgency of this situation into that mainstream even if this is only the, be the beginning of this process and, and, and I think I can also say that that with regard to the question of race and migration the people who are knocking on the doors of fortress Europe are not just uh, mobilized there by virtue of the wars that some of the more belligerent states have initiated in Africa, in the Middle East and elsewhere. There are also now people who are fleeing from the effects of climate change with which the effects of those wars are closely entangled. One thing I've been doing and want to do more of in the future is to work with uh, children, young people in my area, again, very cosmopolitan, many, you know, children of refugees, new settlers and so on, to involve them in ecological and environmental education. And we're very lucky that we have some very precarious projects, but very energetic projects that are trying to do this, often also working with victims of torture or other groups of people, not least black and minority ethnic people who for a variety of issues related to mental health can benefit from being outside and being in nature and being in the woods and being in the air, you know? So I'm very, I'm very interested in, in, a, in a, not just a, an environmentalist politics, I suppose I'd say, but, but in a, a political ecology, in a, in, a, in a form of political ecology. And the writers who have guided my humanism perhaps more than any, are often people who have tried to develop ecological forms of humanism or forms of political ecology attached to the re-enchantment of humanism. Here I'm thinking of the anarchist writer Murray Bookchin, who's been someone who influenced me a lot. So, so this is a, a big area of future for me. And, and in, in Britain, the, the reaction to the Extinction Rebellion protests by the kind of laptop warriors of the social media s sphere has been to be very critical and say that this is only a this is a luxury concern to white people and i wear this symbol because i want to make it clear that whatever disagreements i may have with that initiative i am not going to exclude myself from it on the basis that it's a, a luxury concern to white people only there is, of course, a corollary to to the kind of extinction rebellion and the engagement with the climate change and the threat in the humanities called posthumanism. And posthumanism, in a sense, you could say, would attack the the presupposition that the human being mm -hmm. is hierarchically mm -hmm. above other organisms. So mm -hmm. there is sort of a similarity. Uh, at at uh, at one level, yeah. and that human beings should start thinking of themselves as uh, uh, on par with other organisms, mm. uh, in a sense, mm. and that we should appropriate mm. animal-like mm -hmm. kind of behaviors or mm. become animals mm -hmm. again, in yeah. a sense. You have this, for instance, with Donna Haraway and and other thinkers. Is there uh, a danger to sort of this kind of auto-animalization, if you would like to call it that, or is there, or is this sort of a um, a useful line of thought confronted with climate change? You would say. Well, I think I think this is a useful debate to have. I mean, Donna Haraway, I think, has come out much more as a kind of deep ecologist now. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't take kindly to being lectured from California about, you know, how the rest of the world has to have, uh, make kin and not babies and so on. I, I, I suppose I'm, I, I would like to suggest that there's an opportunity here to, to cultivate a different, again, agonistic humanism uh, from a, a multi-species understanding. Those of us who've been 
told we're infrahuman don't have a problem in becoming animal in quite the same way because we, as Du Bois puts it, we are this tertium quid, the third thing between the animal and the human, or as what we assume to be. So we have a slightly different, I think, relationship to this problem. And it's not one that, that I, I, I mean, can you have an anti-humanist humanism? I've been very uh, influenced by Edward Said, and that's, of course, in his late work. That's the line of argument that he's trying to develop. But I, I, I suspect that we, I mean, here, I'm sure I would be denounced for saying this, but we, even the whales don't read, actually. Yeah. And so there is a uniqueness to our, there is a, a uniqueness to our, uh, relationship to the world, which is not not something I, I necessarily want to, to to privilege, but I I find that some motifs of this anti-humanist and post-humanist initiative in the humanities, anyway, um, suggest that the people who are its advocates prefer animals to other human beings, and actually I'm above all interested in what we say to the people who are in the water and how we how we and how we get them out into a safe and secure place. That's a useful philosophical problem for us to try to solve, because we're going to have to address it much more in the future. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a fantastic pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thanks. <laughs>